MSW Media. Hey, this is Big J Okerson, and you're listening to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. Fly, Eagles, fly. On the road to victory. Fight, fight, fight. Fly, fight, Eagles, fly. Score a touchdown. One, two, One, two three. Hit them high. Watch our eagles fly, fly, We're massacring eagles fly, on the road to victory. Let's bring it home. E-A-G-L-E-S, spelling, go. We are ripped. Well, pour yourself a glass, sit for a spill. It's time to have some fun. Let's do a little thinking, some picking and a drinking. But this is what we're drinking with Dan Dunn. Welcome to the show, my friends. Coming up today, we got one of the great winemakers in these United States, uh, even in the world. His name's Chris Carpenter, and he makes wine for La Coya, Cardinal, Mount Brave, among others. And I am going to have a very in-depth chat with Chris about all things wine. And who doesn't love wine? Hope you had a great Labor Day weekend. I did, although we were getting just blitzed out here with the heat, man. It is the hottest few days of the year out here in California. And uh, I made a mistake when golfing over the weekend out in Simi Valley, which is an area northwest of Los Angeles. Very hot. It was 102 degrees, and I, I almost passed out. Really did. I uh, about six holes in, man. I started feeling some heat stroke coming on, and that's a little scary. But I survived and actually played pretty well. But uh, I got home, and I, you know, I was feeling woozy, and I was craving salt, and I decided to order a pizza, which brings me to a segment that we haven't done in quite some time, but uh, long overdue. It's called. What's driving me to drink? It's driving me to drink. Okay, look, we all got hooked on Uber Eats and DoorDash and whatever, Grubhub and all this during the pandemic out of necessity. We had to. It's how you got, that's how you ate. It's how you got food. But the gouging is just out of control. These these services extract like 30% fees from the restaurants. And, and I happen to have an affinity for people that own restaurants and bars. And just like everybody, I'm assuming if you're listening to this show, you're into the hospitality industry, you should as well. And so I decided that I wasn't going to order anymore from DoorDash or Grubhub or Uber Eats because I don't want them to be taking this big chunk out of the business. So if I can go and get it myself, I will. 
I will make that effort in order to help the restaurants. Now, this brings me to what's driving me to drink. So there's a pizza place by me called Johnny's New York Pizza. I like their pizza. The prices have been going up and up and up and up. Now we get to, I like uh, I like a white pizza, which is you know, cheese and a little bit of garlic and some spinach. They do a really nice white pizza there. So large white pizza at Johnny's New York Pizza is $30. Crazy. It's, it's pretty dear. Okay. Now, if I order that through a delivery service, they're going to tack on a delivery fee and a convenience fee. I don't know what the fuck the difference is between delivery fee and the fee, but it's two different fees. Then they got the tip. Then they got the service. Service. So that $30 pizza becomes $45 to $50, and that's not an exaggeration. And of that extra money, Let's say we'll go with Grubhub. Grubhub is taking all of that extra money and the delivery person gets it too. And then they're also taking about 30% off that $30 pizza. So now you're talking, uh, what's the math there? Nine bucks? Crazy. Crazy. So to avoid all that, be the good guy that I am, I, I order the pizza. Even though I'm feeling woozy, I drive over to Johnny's New York Pizza to get it. It's about two miles from my house. And when I get there and I pay, he hands me the receipt to sign and there's a line for a tip. And this makes me crazy. What am I tipping for? Because if the line is there, the tip, there's an expectation that I got a tip. And if I don't tip, I look like a fucking jerk, right? I guess. And what am I tipping for? I didn't do anything. They made my pizza. That's part of the gig. When you become a pizza, you make the pizza. The tip, is a gratuity for service. There was no service beyond handing me the pizza. I drove all the way over here. I, I got up off my ass and drove over here. Why am I tipping? They're disincentivizing me to go pick it up myself. It's almost like I should just get it delivered and get because then I don't have to leave the house and maybe it'll cost me a few extra dollars. But if I'm already tipping when I get there, what are these restaurants doing? They gotta they gotta figure this out. They gotta say, listen. When people come and pick it up, we have to incentivize them to come and pick it up. And when they come and pick it up, don't have a line on there for a tip because they're doing us a solid and they're keeping everybody here employed because we're making full price on that overpriced pizza as opposed to 30% less on that overpriced pizza. God damn, it's simple economics, (laughs) I guess. Uh, Oh, can I throw in another, uh, just another quick drive me to drink uh, here? It's driving me to drink. Yeah, thank you for that. I love that sound effect. Um, I think that was the first one we ever created, and you can tell. It's very cheesy. The other one driving me to drink. I was reading an article today on CNN about how Brendan Fraser uh, broke down in tears at the premiere of his movie, The Whale, at the Venice Film Festival. And he says, oh, dramatic video. In a dramatic viral video, Brendan Fraser breaks down in tears, and they do not post the video or do they link to the video in the article and i'm seeing this too often don't tease me by reporting on a viral video and then not either putting the video in the story or at least a link to the video in the story it's rude come on it can't be that hard to do jesus anyway other than that i'm in a great mood i hope you are as well Let's uh, let's let's get into the wine, shall we? So yeah, we got Chris Carpenter coming on in just a little bit. Uh, one of the uh, great winemakers of the world. I'm a lucky guy to know people like Chris. And uh, speaking of luck and the people I know, 
a good friend of mine, Fahara Zamorano, is a uh, sommelier of some note. She has worked in uh, f- famous chef Curtis Stone's restaurants, Gwen, out here in Los Angeles, among other places. She's, she's the best. And um, she hit me up uh, last week and she said, hey, do you want to come to this fancy dinner? Dinner party. Sounded very sophisticated and, and uh, adult. I don't do a lot of adult things. In my, not, I don't do enough adult things. And I thought, you know what? Saturday night, dinner party, sounds fantastic, and I'll do it. And I went to this dinner party, and it was as good as advertised, if not better. It was thrown by a uh, by a, a couple. Uh, the 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 woman who started the company. The company's called Bondle, and her name is Dwen Ha. And she had this party to sort of introduce a, a great group of people to Bondle, but all just really just because she likes bringing people together with a great meal and great wine. And and a big part of that is because she's worked at some of the the world's great restaurants. I'm screwing up this intro, but I'm going to, I'm fortunate. She's here right now talking to her. Dwen, how are you? Hey, how's it going, Dan? How are you? You are, well, you're not here. You're, we're talking over Zoom. Thank you again right. for a wonderful evening. And now I know I botched that, but Bondle is the name of your company and Bondle does what? Cool. So what Bondel does is that we import natural French wines from really, really small family producers. When I'm saying small, I'm meaning our champagne producer only makes 2000 bottles of Magnums a year. The first collection bred, I mean, Olivier Piton only made 300 bottles and only put them in Magnums. Um, So we're talking about really, really small, scarce quantities. Um, And so we're selling them all in a seasonal collection. So for each collection, we have a champagne, a red, a white, an orange, and a rosé. And so for the collections, when it changes, we're either working with new winemakers or different cuvées, and that change happens every season or every six months. Well, I love the concept, too, of only doing magnums. If I understand correctly, the idea was just because it's like it's a party. And if you just bring it, if you bring a regular seven, so everybody knows a a magnum is 1.5 liters as opposed to a normal bottle of wine. A regular bottle of wine be 750 milliliters. Um, Am I getting that right? Yeah, I am getting it right. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) I like this concept of, you know what? One bottle's not enough. So a magnum is- Two bottles. Two. two yeah. Bottles. I mean, I always say that, like, if you're a good friend, you bring two bottles. If you're a great friend, you bring a Magnum. You know, like, for me, being a chef, like, I've had enough of these dinner parties. It's kind of how I got into cooking in the first place, because I was just bringing my friends over, cooking for everyone. And it was very obvious that one bottle wasn't enough. Um, and so then if people are bringing two, they'll bring two different bottles. But then that one bottle, everyone's getting kind of a sip of it. So... Why not just always have a Magnum and every day is just kind of like a celebration. Oh, look, Dwen, we got a special surprise visitor joining us right here. Everybody, it's Fahara Zamorano. Yay. Hey. Nice to see you. And I we I was talking just earlier about how you uh, were so gracious to invite me to this thing. And and Dwen was telling us about Bondel and what what the wines are bringing. So let's get your expert take on these wines, Far. Yeah, you know, the beautiful thing about what Duane is doing with Bondel is, uh, well, 
The first thing is everything's Magnum. So that's already, you know, the moment you walk in the door, you're like, whoa, that's cool. Um, mm -hmm. You're walking and making an impression. And then what's really important for me is they're really going all, you know, they're going in uh, exploring small producers, you know, growers, uh, family-owned wineries that have been around for generations and really telling their story and showcasing these wines um, that are super small production to the American market that otherwise wouldn't be getting these wines. So that is, that's really... So that's a great, that's a great point. So these are producers that are so small that you wouldn't, mm -hmm. you know, they're doing great, but they're just not going to be on anybody, any of the big boys, the KJs or any of the Gallup that are buying, they're not mm -hmm. going to be on the radar. So you're finding the little hidden gems, right? Exactly. And so how that all happened was during COVID when all the restaurants were closed, I was in Paris at the time. That's kind of when I had this moment of like, okay, maybe I'm going to do this hard pivot into wine. And it was crazy because, you know, there was like all these restrictions on traveling. People couldn't be on the roads after 6pm. You couldn't leave anything past a kilometer or travel a kilometer past your house. But we were just driving all around France and just checking out all these really, really small vineyards. And so for all the wines in this collection, we're the only ones carrying them in the States. Um, and then even the previous collection, there was only one wine that was currently in the States. So yeah, really, really small. I'm curious from the business side of it, do you simply just purchase the juice from them or do you, are they profit sharing depending on how much wine you sell? We're purchasing the juice and we're purchasing it um, ahead of time because what we want to do, especially with these small vineyards, and to make sure we're having a good relationship is that like a lot of, you know, importers will pay a certain amount once it lands, but we're paying it all up front. So it's a very similar model to what um, Del McGay, I don't know if you're familiar with Del McGay Mezcal, what Del McGay started doing many, many years ago with the small Mezcal producers, basically form, forging these relationships with them, entering into long-term agreements where we're going to buy mm -hmm. your mess. You're kind of doing the same thing with the wine here, right? Right, exactly. Very smart way to do it. Uh, you know, lock Thank them up you. because <laughs> yeah. I got to tell you, everybody, the wines that I had at this dinner were just—I mean, the first, the food. So you don't even get into that, when You so yeah. talk about the restaurants that you worked at. Right. So I went to culinary school uh, in Paris. Uh, it's called Ferrandi, which is the best culinary school in France. Uh, I graduated valedictorian there. And then that landed me um, a job at Arpege, which is a three Michelin star restaurant. Uh, Alan Passard is the chef there where all the food, all the vegetables come from his two gardens right outside of Paris. So the menu, there's no set menu. It really depends on what's in the walk-in fridge um, for an 18 course dinner, you know, which is insane. And then after that, uh, I went to the south of France to work at Mirazer, which at the time they were the number one restaurant in the world, uh, to then start working at Frenchie. Uh, I got a work visa there as a sous chef. Um, and that's a one Michelin star restaurant that is very world renowned for their wine program. Wow. Been to any of those far? <laughs> You've been to any of these restaurants we're talking about here? Um, no, unfortunately. I've I've been in front of Frenchie, but I've never actually dined in there. Um, <laughs> but you, but yes. we mentioned this, I, maybe this was before you got on, but you've worked here, certainly in Los Angeles at some of the, the great restaurants of this area. Sure. That food that we had the other night that, that Dwayne 
prepared it as, along with uh, what was his name, the chef, the chef Yohei, Yohei. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, just incredible. How do like the wine pairings were so perfect too? Is that you know that that's that's the other wonderful thing about Bondel is because Duane's background is uh, as a, as a chef. She is a chef. Um, you know, she's with with these dinners that she's doing. She's creating the dishes backwards. So normally, you know, when you go to a restaurant, the chef puts together a menu and then you pair that menu. You find wine to pair it with where, you know, Duane is doing here. She's she already has, you know, her five wines for the second collection and she's making dishes specifically to pair with the wines. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, so it's incredible. We're talking five course tasting menu that's 100 percent Michelin status, uh, you know, with the five wines for the new collection. So, uh, yeah, it was it was a quite a special dinner. I'm really glad you were able to, to make it. I'm really glad, too. Thank you for that invite. And, and all the wines are natural wines, right? Yep, natural yeah. wines. Uh, a lot of them biodynamic practices as well. Female winemakers for two of our vineyards we're working with. Price point, basically, for these magnums? Yeah, so the rosé, it's starting at 110 to so the champagne, it's 135 and then the red, uh, the red, white, and orange is one fifteen. Fahar, did you? If you had, I know they're all great. They are, but if you, if somebody out there is going, I'm going to get one magnum of bundle to start. They're all really wonderful, but I'm really in love with the champagne uh, for multiple reasons. Of course, it's because it's delicious, but also this this house, um, so the, the the champagne house that um, that the wine comes from is been around since the 12th century um, in the family, and it's also female winemaker. So I it holds a special place in my heart. Also, as you know, you were there. We love savoring uh, <laughs> magnums of champagne. So <laughs> you you are one of the better saberers. You the, the, you're not even you're not messing around. You just stepped out. You're like, nah. I see some people when they're sabering, you see a little bit of fear in their eyes. Like, am I gonna mess <laughs> yeah. it? You're just like, come here, give me that bottle. Whack. It comes right off the top, right? You gotta do it with confidence. How yeah. many bottles yeah. have you have you sabered, do you think, in your career? In my life? Yeah. Over a thousand. Wow. Okay. Wow. I well, I like there was a time in my life when I sabered everything. Just, like I just yeah. walking yeah, around. I was just like you see her walking around with a, like a, a big what are they a machete you're using for that a saber saber it was a saber <laughs> and saber yeah machete I mean yeah sorry it's been a long day um, well this is I gotta say really I think it's such a cool idea and anybody out there that likes wine just this this the world today it's just rare it seems to me to find mm-hmm. undiscovered things like this yeah. because the internet right. everybody oh even the coolest stuff mm-hmm. gets ruined because somebody writes yeah. about it and it's probably happening right now they're gonna be like yeah. oh bundle let's go get it um make sure you get those contracts signed when quick right. lock them up definitely you know? um, yeah. but go to bundle it's b-o-n-d-l-e and i really can't recommend it more highly fahar zamorano duen ha it's been a real pleasure thank you Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you, Dan. Cheers to you. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, R, R. It happened again. Whenever I randomly decide to perform the alphabet on this show, I always get stuck on those three R's. Guess it's because of my close personal relationship with Batiste Rum, known far and wide as the 3R Rum, because they practice regenerative agriculture, use renewable energy, and make responsible choices. The makers of Batiste Rum employ an eco 
eco-positive, solar-powered manufacturing process from beginning to end. It's the only known beverage alcohol in the world to have a climate-positive, natural production process without the purchase of carbon offsets. Batiste Rum is made from 100% pure, fresh cane juice, not molasses or sugar crystals. If you like your tequila 100% agave, then you'll like your rum 100% cane juice. It's an incredibly damn delicious rum to be enjoyed neither in cocktails. I got two great offer codes from Batiste for you. Go to BatisteRum.com. That's B-A-T-I-S-T-E-R-H-U-M.com. Fill up your cart. Enter code WWD15 at checkout to get 15% off all orders. And if you want to try their delicious reserve rum, and you should, enter code RESERVE to get 20% off. Folks, Batiste Rum has proved that great taste with true sustainability is not a goal for tomorrow, but a reality today. And that is as simple as ABC. I had some people over recently, and the homemade drinks were a-flowing. All my guests were like, dude, these are the best friggin' cocktails I've ever had. You're an amazing mixologist. And I was like, damn straight I am. What my guest didn't know is I was cheating a little bit. Of course, I used top-shelf booze in the drinks, and you gotta do that. But I wasn't juicing the limes or pureeing the prickly pears or grinding up the jalapenos that made my cocktail so great. All I did was order Fresh Victor. Fresh Victor is a line of all-natural, clean-label cocktail mixers that brings the magic of master mixologist into your home with contemporary flavors designed to suit any palate. All of the ingredients are fair trade sourced. There's no artificial anything. The mixers are produced at a 100% solar-powered juicing plant with absolutely no waste. Fresh Victor is here to let you put down the citrus press and get back to the party. Right now, Fresh Victor is offering a juicy deal to my listeners. Simply go to FreshVictor.com and at checkout, enter promo code WWD20 to get 20% off your order. You want to throw a party? Throw a party and treat yourself and your guests to the very best mixers on the market. And that's Fresh Victor. Joining me now, a winemaker who makes really, really, really good juice up in Napa Valley. Some of the more prestigious wineries up there, including Cardinal, La Hoda, Mount Brave, La Coya. But he's also taken his talents abroad of late to Hickenbotham, Clarendon Vineyard in South Australia's McLaren Val. He has been making wine for two decades, and more importantly, one of the coolest people I know in the industry... Chris Carpenter. How are you, buddy? I'm good, Dan. How are you? It's good to see you, man. It's uh it's been a while. You and I met, boy, many, many years ago, and we've we've seen each other periodically over the years. But the last time I was up in Napa, I think I came by, but you weren't there. Yeah, we missed each other uh, that time. But the very first time that we met, we had lunch with uh, Jonathan. The world's most interesting man. That's correct. And my 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 old friend Jonathan Goldsmith, who played the most interesting man in the world. We had lunch and wine in Santa Monica. Let me see if my memory's good at the uh, hotel there. No. I can't right remember. on the beach. Right on the beach. It was yeah. It'll come to me. But uh, that was great, and that was sort of a uh, an intro to what you do and so you're routinely scoring and i know this doesn't matter to you but your wines are scoring uh, they're getting 100 point scores and whatnot right i do quite well yeah yeah i'm very fortunate that way and your background is 
interesting in that you grew up in Chicago, uh, kind of a blue collar background, I believe, right? A little bit, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and then you uh, you were bartending in Chicago, and then you just decided, fuck it, I want to go out to California, right? Well, kind of like it's some. That's the, the short answer, but yeah, I was a uh, I graduated with a degree in biology from University of Illinois back in the late '80s, and at that time there wasn't a lot you could do with that degree, with the exception of teaching or going on to further education, medical school, dental school, that sort of uh, career, and that wasn't for me. Uh, and one of the ways that I had gotten myself through university at Illinois was working at a bar. So when I moved up to Chicago, I needed money to pay for myself. And I started working at this Irish bar, one of the great Irish bars in Chicago, Butch McGuire's. And uh, our bar was, was a bar. We, were, we served pub food, but we were mostly uh, cocktail, or not cocktail, beer and, beer and whiskey joint. And uh, a lot of the people that I palled around with after school were my customers that were coming in from the restaurants after 11 o'clock at night. We were open till five. So a lot of the restaurants were closing between 11 and one. And we were a lot of the restaurant people's watering holes. And uh, those people became my pals. You know, I, I throw a couple of Guinness across the bar for them. And then I go into their uh, respective uh, restaurants and I'd get a, you know, few entrees and, and some love at the table. And uh, we became friends and started exploring food and wine. And in a city like Chicago, it's not a hard thing to do. You know, there's a lot of uh, culinary greatness there. And uh, a couple of my buddies were uh, two or three years ahead of us, knowledge-wise, on uh, wine. And they started turning us on to really great wines. And we started moving away from the uh, bottles of Chianti and the basket bottles uh, to a little bit more refined of a palate. And I was, I was, I, I also ended up working uh, during the day uh, in medical products. I had gotten my MBA. I was doing pretty well in that field. And the next step for me was moving into a, a more traditional marketing role in the city of Indianapolis, um, which I wasn't ready for. I was living a very cosmopolitan life in Chicago. Indy is a great city if you're getting ready to settle down, and I wasn't. Um, so I, I, it, it forced me to reflect on what I was doing and, and where I was going. And, and I, a lot of my pals from school lived in California time. So I, I took a walkabout out, out this way and I started down in San Diego and couch surfed my way up to the Bay Area. It took about three weeks and uh, the last place that we visited was Napa and I put two and two together. Uh, you know, Napa and winemaking were all those things that I had been kind of circling around but I hadn't really yet articulated. Uh, what I knew was that I wanted to somehow stay involved in the restaurant business. I didn't want to work in a restaurant the rest of my life, but I wanted to be involved in that energy and that and the idea of making people happy. And um, wine is intimately involved in the restaurant industry. I wanted to get back to a science-oriented career where I wasn't relaying the science 
of somebody else's discoveries that I was actually engaged in uh, scientific thought and process. And winemaking has a tremendous amount of that. No, uh, Chris, just for frame of reference here, when is this? What year is this? And how old, this are, is and how old are you? This is 92 that I took the walkabout. And you're in your 20s at this point, I guess, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was, I, that, and that was part of it, too. I was almost, I was getting, I was probably 28. 30 was knocking on the door. I had a wife that, or not a wife at the time, and a girlfriend that was wanting to take the next step and get married and have kids. And, uh, you know, all those big, heady decisions were upon me. And I wanted to make a move before I, uh, frankly, before I had kids, before I was, you know, uh, had the responsibility of other human beings under my wing. Look, there's a, I went through something similar, not that I have wife and kids, because I'm uh, smart. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. I, I, uh, you are, man. Don't come anywhere near that. But I. But there is there is that moment I think for people that have that sense of wanderlust where you go, this is it. If I don't do this now, the I know the path, and the path is you get the kids, you get the house, you get in this yep. job that that's paying you well and and is providing you with material things, but that. You must. You knew innately. You knew that this was not going to be give you the rewarding life that you wanted. No, that's exactly what it was. You know, I the company that I worked for was a great company and a great product, uh, and the career that I could have gone on would have been a good career. But it wasn't. I wouldn't have woke. I, I was selling blood and urine analyzers during the day. They were good products, but I didn't wake up in the morning going, man, I can't wait to sell the next urine analyzer to Like when someone lab. someone drinks yeah. a glass of Cardinal and they say to you, man, this is the greatest wine I ever had, that's got to be a good feeling. But when a doctor says, you know what, the piss I sampled today could not have done it without you, Chris. You're like, God damn it, look at me. You know, no. I, but see, but then, you know, I will say to, to the defense of that of that career, that that was what doctors said to me. But that didn't turn me on because it wasn't, I wasn't creating it. So the other, the other part of what I was looking for was to do something creative. I had left the Irish bar. I'd moved to a music club in Chicago called Shuba's. And it was one of those places that, you know, it's not only musicians hanging out, but artists were hanging out there, actors, people in the advertising world. Um, there was a whole like creative vibe there. And that was really turning me on. Uh, much like your Hunter S. Thompson kind of inspiration, sure. this was my inspiration at the time. And winemaking, taking a trip up to Napa at the tail end of that walkabout was what turned the, the page for me because it combines all those things. I use the sciences. I'm intimately tied to the restaurant industry. And there's a good portion of my year that is creative. And um you know, I went back to Chicago. This is way before the internet. Uh, this is when you know the internet was just starting up. So I didn't. I had no idea how to find out how to do this. I couldn't just type it in. How do you become a winemaker like you can now? And I was just. I had, I had subscribed to a couple of food and wine magazines, and one of those magazines there was an article that appeared about UC Davis and the program that has trained many of the great winemakers in the world at one of the great accredited universities of, of the world, the University of California system. Davis has a specialty program in uh, wine uh, science and uh, vine science. And 
I applied to that. It's yeah. almost a shock when I meet a, especially in California, when I when I talk to or meet a winemaker who didn't go to Davis. It's it, at a, you know at the big wineries. It's just it is a factory, and I don't mean that in a bad way. They produce the best of the best. It's it's a great university. You know, California. It's a I want to say it's a sixty billion dollar industry. The wine industry as a sector of the agricultural industry. So. In, in our university system, they're going to support an industry of that magnitude, and they do it at Davis. Now, since I went there, other programs have really risen to the fore. Uh, there's one at Fresno State. There's one at Cal Poly. Washington State has one. Oregon State has one. Back east, Cornell has a really good program. Um, but, you know, ultimately, Davis is still the best. And I, um, I was very fortunate to get accepted there, and my then-girlfriend – uh, and I, I made the commitment to come out. We got married, and that's what we did. We we came out, and I haven't looked back. And you've ascended to a um, a level that not too many winemakers reach in, in this country, for sure. But what I think is great is the that you've remained. Are you still bartending at the Rutherford Grill on Friday nights? No, funny. Because uh, let me let me give this so everybody knows what's going on. What we're talking about here. Yeah. Even when Chris was at the the making some of world class wines for some of the biggest wineries in Napa, uh, maybe to, I don't just to connect, keep yourself humble, just because you love doing it. You would bartend for years every Friday yeah. night at the Rutherford Grill up there, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was a little bit of all those things, Dan. You know, I um, I love bartending. Yeah, there's there, it's it's. It is a, a safe space for me socially, if you, if you can, because I'm not I'm not spending money and I'm not I'm, I'm with a bunch of people that are having fun. And you know, I, I, I at the grill, I had regulars that were going in there for 20 years coming in to see me. So these were my pals that I would see on Friday night. I, it kept me connected to the uh, restaurant industry and to trends in wine drinking that a lot of my colleagues didn't have or don't have. Um, and, and, you know, I just, like I said, I really enjoyed it. COVID put an end to that, uh, which was a good thing because my younger daughter was her last year in high school. I got to see all of her soccer games. I didn't have to miss any, which I would have had to miss half of them if I had stayed working there, uh, before she left. And what's funny is my elder daughter, who's back from college, who I said, if she's going to live with me, uh, she has to get a job is interviewing at the Rutherford Grill tomorrow. Uh, so she's carrying the torch for you. So you don't. Is there uh, any any desire to maybe you know go every once in a while and and do a shift? Yeah. Well, in fact, I, I was giving myself till after this harvest, and we came out of COVID. I did a lot of traveling, as as many of us did when COVID uh, finally let up. Um, I did traveling both socially and for work. That slowed down. I've got harvest now, but my intention after harvest is to go and find another gig somewhere uh, and see if I can get another one night a, a week. That's all I can do. That's it. Yeah, it, 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 it's just funny to me that you <clears throat> that you even do it. But I think it's great. Now you've spent a lot of time in bars, Dan. You know how compelling. Once in a while, those, those, <laughs> once in a while, bastions uh, of humanity are. You know? And and you and I have spent time in the similar sorts of bars. Me growing up in Philly, and you it, it, being in Chicago. Um, part of the reason we're talking beyond just catching up is you've got some new releases that have come out, and I 
the 2019 releases are coming out. And La Hoda, I actually drank the Merlot the other night, uh, which was just a, a fantastic wine. But I want to tell you why I drank that one and I didn't drink the other one. And it'll bring to something that I think people want to know about. So you also sent the 2019 Cardinal Cabernet Sauvignon, and I couldn't bring myself to open that. First of all, everybody listening, it's it's an expensive wine. It's not it's not uh, it's a couple hundred dollars for sure. And I don't want to open it, even though I wanted to talk to you about it. I figured I just you could tell me about it because I don't want to open it because it's too soon, right? Like it's not ready to be open, is it? Yeah. So you're 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 spot on. It depends, you know, Americans like younger wines, generally. Uh, we, we're not, we, we, you know, we, like, we like immediate gratification to a certain degree as a culture. Uh, and wines are, are not immune to that uh, thought process. But I specialize in mountain vineyards. And part of mountain viticulture that you have to deal with when you're making the wines is the concentration of these compounds called tannins. And tannins are those compounds when you drink a wine that can either be chewy or they can be they can be real astringent or they can be bitter or they can be real drying. Um, with mountain wines, what I try to do is, is lean on the chewy side so that when you taste that wine, you can you can like almost eat eat the wine, and there's something compelling about that. Uh, but there's still a lot of them. The concentration effect with, with these mountain vines are pretty prominent. So opening a bottle that young, you're going to get a lot of those tannins and you're going to mask a lot of the flavor compounds behind the tannin. Because tannins are these massive compounds. Flavor compounds are these really small, delicate ones. Yeah. The massive ones kind of shadow them. It's like it's like like Shaq standing next to, um, I don't know, not Manute Bowl, but... Uh, uh, one of the shorter basketball boats. Muggsy Bogues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Muggsy Bogues. Yeah, it's, it's that kind of analogy. Um, so your your intuitiveness around that is really quite quite spot on. Those tannins over time will, will continue to evolve. And what will happen is they'll form these chains. But right now, there's a lot of individual tannin molecules floating around in that wine. And oxygen seeps in, and oxygen is like a link, and it forms these chains. And those chains will get so big, they'll ultimately fall out of the wine, creating what we know as sediment, but also making those flavor compounds more available to you. So the longer you let that wine sit, the more those flavors will come out. The other great thing about tannins, especially with mountain wines, is because they are oxygen scavengers, because those links are, are connecting the wines, the, the wines tend to preserve for a lot longer and maintain that fruit character a lot longer. So that 19 Cardinal that you have, you know, you could open that in 10 years. It's still going to have a lot of that great fruit character, but those tannins will have evolved to a really nice soft presence on your palate. Well, what's interesting, Chris, is tell me if I'm wrong here. So I just chose to open the Merlot because I have this notion, whether I don't know if it's right, but like that the the Cabernets are built to age longer. But what, what I found interesting when it, when I got the notes on the 2019 La Hoda Merlot from Napa Valley is that it 
first of all, it's $100 for that wine, if anybody wants to get it, and it is absolutely worth it. But it uh, it also said that, that it would age gracefully the next decade or two. Yeah. Now, it was not under the impression that Merlot was something you would want to age that long. Am I, is that just a misconception? or? No, that's not a misconception at all. Uh, in fact, it's those tannins that I talked about with Cabernet. Cabernet has a greater concentration generally of the five main Bordeaux varieties. And those five main varieties are Cabernet, Cabernet Franc, Tiverdeaux, Malbec, and Merlot. Malbec and Merlot typically have the lowest concentration of those tannins, except in the mountains. So that wine that you had was a mountain Merlot. So the terroir is what is making that an ageable, making that wine. Okay, got it. That's exactly right. And another interesting thing too, when I, with the Merlot, I noticed that part of the blend, so it's uh, 80, almost 82% Merlot, and then you got some Petit Verdot in there, but you've got Tanat, Tanat in there. Now, yeah. I was not familiar with this grape until I wrote my book, American Wino, and I encountered it a lot in Texas. Hmm. They were growing it in Texas. Now, where is that, where is this grape native to, and what does it do? Why is it in the blend? Yeah, good question. Um I just learned something today. I didn't know they grew a lot of Tanat in Texas. In Hill Country, which is yeah. uh, just below uh, Austin, Texas, a, a fanta- which fa- I didn't know this either when I did it. Beyond Napa, Sonoma, wine tourism-wise, it's the second most visited place in the United States. Yeah, I don't doubt it. I mean, they're doing a really great job. I mean, they're, they're, they're in Texas, so they do everything big. you know. And, and I don't doubt that they're, they're positioning that, that region as such. Um, Tanat, so a little, little background on Tanat in general, and then how I encountered it. Tanat is grown um, in the southern part of Bordeaux. And the thing about Tanat is that it, it has incredible color. It's got, remember we were talking about tannin? It has a tremendous amount of tannin because it's got an extra seed in the berry. And a lot of those tannins come from that seed. Um, and it's got a great weight to it. So what the Bordelais do, when they have a really light vintage, they'll sneak some Tanat into, the, into their cabs. They won't tell a lot of people about it, but they'll sneak a little Tanat in, which helps build the structure of those wines, helps build the concentration of those wines and the color of those wines. It's a, it's, it's a typical um, uh, technique that the Bordelais have utilized for centuries. I got turned on to it because much like what Argentina has done with Malbec, Uruguay has done with Tanat. They've adopted that variety as the variety of choice for that particular area. And I was down in Uruguay, oh gosh, 10 years ago, and I, I was jumping from winery to winery, and I was tasting all these different Tanats, and I really enjoyed them. And there was one guy who I ran into who had just finished, like two years before that, an internship in California. And he brought a lot of the sensibility of California winemaking back to Uruguay and was producing Tanat in a California style. If you're not careful with Tanat, it can be this massive, like overblown tanning thing that you can't get at. But what he was doing was he was ripening it a little bit more to create these really compelling, uh, delicious wines. And I, I came back and I, and I, um, I oversee the vineyards in Napa that we make the uh, wines from. 
and I snuck uh, six rows of Tanat into one of my vineyards, and um, it, it makes a great addition to that Merlot uh, because, again, Merlot doesn't have that same kind of structural component. Merlot's a little bit more plush, but then you put a little Tanat in there, it gives it a little bit of backbone, and Tanat also carries this great, like, black raspberry thing with it. What stood out to me... The flavor profile of that wine was I got a lot of that berry flavor, a little bit of plum flavor, but then there was also this, um, you know, you'll hear it described as minerality, but almost to me like clay, not clay, but like a metallic, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but there was this, No, 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 no there's no, something, is my right on that? What you're describing is Howell Mountain. You just described Howell Mountain to a T. Those soils have a tremendous amount of iron in them, and uh, that minerality it. comes through in how those how that area expresses itself. So there, the other thing about the mountains is very different than the valley floor. Is you know when if you're a master sommelier and you go through your whole training, one of the ways that you distinguish European wines typically from New World wines, particularly American wines, is minerality, which is that that undescribable factor that you were just trying to describe. It's a real difficult thing to nail, but once you, once you perceive it, there's no getting, getting away from it. In Napa, it's really hard to find that on the valley floor. Up in the mountains, it's ubiquitous. It okay. is part of what distinguishes mountain wines from the valley floor is that sense of mineral, that, that iron, that, that, um, that wet shale after a rainstorm kind of aromatic. That spice, it, it's it's all. That's about it. That. Yeah, that's exactly what I was getting. It's funny you bring up the uh, the master sommelier. So what Chris was talking about is, you know, they have to part of the test. They have to identify. I mean, down to like, you know, <laughs> the uh, the uh, the patch of grass where where it was. I mean, they have to identify down to the village where this wine came from. But how good are you at that? Can you if so, if somebody laid out ten wines in front of you, are you would you give yourself a better than odds on chance of being able to identify at yeah, least the I'm, region where it came from? Yeah, I might be able to get six six or seven out of ten, whereas a master psalm will get nine out of ten. You know, I'm I'm not, I mean, some of that coursework that they're studying and the, like you said, the patch to grass, I don't need to know that, you know, unless I'm making, making the wine from there or I have a passion about that particular area or grape. I mean, they have to know 30 different areas and they have to know it like the back of their hand. I, you know, my job is different. I need to know on a farm for the area that I'm in and make sure that I'm taking advantage of that knowledge and elevating the grapes to, to make the best wines possible. Because ultimately it's not about what I'm doing in the winery. It's about understanding the, the geography, the geology, all those things that come into play. Um, and, you know, I don't know, like, they might be able to break down Chinon, for, which is a region in uh, the Loire that produces Cab Franc down to the producer. I could tell you that it's a Chinon. I couldn't tell you where <laughs> who, in the Loire. Who's making what they had for what, dinner that night and that kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah. Now, you, you mentioned um, whether you said, oh, if the wine excites me or if you're going to make it there. Just... Obviously, beyond you're making wine in Napa, you're making wine in Australia. What are some maybe off the beaten path regions that are exciting you now? I don't necessarily mean where you'd want to go make wine there, but you just want to drink. Like if someone wants to try something 
unusual, what would you recommend? Like wines from where? Well, you know, I got to tell you, we are embarking on a uh, white wine project, myself and my uh, assistant winemaker, John Ghirladucci. And in order to get ramped up for that and to learn about this, this exciting new realm of particularly Rhone variety whites, we went down to Paso Robles and tasted uh, a number of producers down there that are making varieties like Pickpool and Grenache Blanc and Grenache Gris and Roussan and Marsan. And man, I got to tell you, the wines down there are off the charts good, the white wines. We didn't taste a lot of red wine, so I don't want to speak neither um, for or against those, but we drank a lot of white wines. And some of the best white wines that I think are being produced in North America right now are coming out of Paso. Uh, that's one. Any reason. any particular producers that we could? Uh, we went to Alta Colina, which was which was outstanding, and we went to um, gosh, what's the other one? Um, it, it, it's on the tip of my tongue, but anyway, those those that area is worth exploring. Um, as you mentioned, I I work in South Australia now, and. For me, one of the most exciting places to explore and to revisit after the, you know, the 90s when we were collecting Aussie wines and then they, they started flooding the market with the Critter brands is Australia and all the different regions in Australia. I mean, what, what Americans don't realize about that continent is there's 20 of some of the greatest wine growing regions in the world in Australia. And, and quite far apart. Some are closer than others, but you've got the Margaret River out by Perth. You've got the Barossa, McLaren Vale, the Clare, um, the Adelaide Hills in South Australia, Coonawara in South Australia. You've got the Hunter Valley. You've got Tasmania. All these incredible places with some of the most passionate and skilled winemakers in the world and some of the, the most unique and perfect terroir for growing these grapes in the world. And, you know, the Aussies have been, have been producing great wines uh, continuously. Just a lot of them didn't come here for a while. You know, they put in the, the, uh, the, the supermarket brands at the checkout counter for five bucks a bottle to kind of crush their market in, in the U.S. But if, if I was to recommend any place outside of the U.S. to explore again, look in Australia, man, because you, you won't go wrong producers there are off the charts good and the wines are are startlingly good. Now you've you've talked about terroir, you've talked about grapes. The thing I want to talk about now before I let you go is um as we're recording this, we are starting to get hit out here in California with a big time heat wave. And when this podcast drops in a few days, we're going to be right in the middle of it. Record temperatures, it's getting hot. And I don't need to tell everybody what's going on, but I do think about this, particularly having been out here for many years and knowing people like yourself, and and I've got so many friends up there, and not only in Napa and Sonoma, but in Paso and Santa Barbara. What are we in for, Chris? Like, what? I don't think there's any denying that the climate is changing what does it mean to places like napa places like australia looking out 20 years from now is wine the wine coming out of these regions going to be the same or the wine making tech are you going to be able to adapt figure it out what's going on yeah that's that's the question of the ages dan 
Uh, they, you know, one of the places that we are affected by climate change first and foremost is agriculture. That as, as far as our business goes as an industry, uh, where it hits us first is, is in, in growing food and growing wine and all the things that we think about, you know, that, that feed us. Um, so a lot of our decision making now is based on where we think climate change is going, uh, how we think we can affect change along the lines of water usage, uh, um, heat units and, and the accumulation of those heat units and how it changes what we can grow in any one place. Now, will Cabernet be a viable variety in Napa in 30 years? I don't know. What I can tell you is you look at examples like the Okanagan Valley in British Columbia. So when I got into the business, the Okanagan Valley is uh, this wonderful spot for growing ice wine. The yeah. ice wine is this technique where that you let the grapes freeze and then they're basically little balls of ice and you press them and they make this really sweet, wonderful dessert wine. They did that because it was too cold up there to grow anything else. They're growing Cabernet Franc in the Okanagan Valley and now, and they're growing it quite successfully. They're not making it right bank style, which is the Bordeaux style. They're making it more, going back to Chinon, the Chinon style, which is more of a like lighter red, but they're 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 pretty damn good. You know, so those kind of decisions and where we're going as an industry, every one of us in this in this world is is trying to think where we're going to be in 20 years and how are we going to get there and what can we do to slow the process down? How do we mitigate what we what we have in the ground right now from a you know, this heat wave coming in, what do we need to do to protect our grapes? Because we're right at the beginning. The, the We haven't picked any red grapes here yet. And this heat wave is going to push things fast. It's only September. But do, Chris, it seems like it wasn't that long ago that harvest was end of October. Yeah. And now, and, yeah. th- and that's unheard of now, right? I mean, you know, yep. like there, nobody's, I mean, I've got friends that are winemakers doing wine down in Arizona. They picked weeks ago. You know, and and it's like, and even there in Arizona, they used to pick mid to end of September. And now you're going, when I wrote American Wino, I stopped by and saw you on the way when I was up there back in 2014. You hadn't, I don't think you'd picked yet back then, you know, and that was, that was, I got up to Napa probably third week of September in 2014. Was that seem about right? Maybe you were picking then, but, but everybody was either just starting to pick or hadn't even picked yet. And by the third week of September now, it's all going to be off the vines, right? Yeah, I, that, I mean, that's the scary part. Now, we had a really early and short harvest last year. The good news is it was it was incredible quality. But that's you know, grapes need a certain amount of time on the vine. And when you have these heat spells come in, the sugar pushes way quicker than everything else. And you make decisions not to bring in raisins versus allowing that fruit to stay on the vine and accumulate flavor, which it won't do because it's raisining. So uh, yeah, everything's changing, Dan. And and we're, I like to say, I like to think that ag in general is leading some of those processes to slow that change down and to make us aware of that. You think about farmers in general, the, 
they're typically very conservative people. They lean quite a ways to the right in everything but climate change. You yeah. know, because they're the first ones to have embraced the reality of climate change because it's affecting their business. And uh, we're making those changes to, to uh, answer that. Yeah, well, hopefully it's going to continue to yield great wines up there. Now, now speaking of that, I want to ask you, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a note on this bottle. So I've got the 2019 Cardinal Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon. It's a, As I mentioned earlier, this is a very, uh, I know Chris probably isn't going to like me to say this, but it's a precious wine. How long should I, what date should I put on that? Open it, what year? 10 years from now? I, I, yeah, I think if you open it 10 years from now, it'll still have all of that fruit and it'll start showing what we call tertiary characters, which are those characters like sandalwood and cedar and leather. It'll show a little bit of that, but it'll be in the, it, you, and see, that's the other thing, Dan. It depends what you like. There are people that love those tertiary characters. And if they were waiting for that bottle, they may wait another 10 years so that 90% of it is that tertiary character. But if you wait 10, a lot of those tannins will be resolved and you'll still get that fruit character in it. And it'll be a lot more lush on your palate than what it is now, which is much more structured. Again, not a bad thing if you're into that, but if you're into more of that lush character, you know, wait a little bit. And then you've also got the, I've got a bottle of the Mount Brave 2019 Cabernet Sauvignon, which you make up on uh, in Mount Veeder. Same thing? About the same thing. Yeah. In terms of in terms of aging that, because I've got, yeah. I, you know, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta hit you up, Chris, because I, because I have some of your, I have Cardinal, I've got Lacoya, I've got Mount Brave in my, my my various wine fridges here, and I'm just thinking to myself, I should probably go take a look because some of them are probably getting up close to ten years or they're, they're more. You know, the thing about the Mount Brave, what I try to do with the Mount Brave Cabernet and the Lahota Cabernet, because I make Lacoya which is a full-on mountain, 100% Cabernet that is meant for the collector, first and foremost, at $350 a bottle. These are collectors that are buying these wines. Um, with Mount Brave and Lahota, what I'm thinking about is, okay, how can I present a mountain wine with all of the concentration, all the nuance, the floral characters, the brightness, the acid, of a mountain wine without a tremendous amount of tannins to the restaurant environment. You know, because restaurateurs, if they buy a, a, a recently released La Coya, those are babies. It's a tragedy when you open those, you know, as young as first year out. Whereas Mount Brave and La Hoda, you can open those, Dan, if you give them a little decant time, give them a couple hours in the decanter, they're going to be fine. You know, and that's what happens at a lot of the, in the restaurant environments. Those guys will decant them. They'll put them through a Venturi, which is one of one of yeah. the very few wine gadgets that actually works, um, that you can, you know, move a little oxygen into them. And those wines do quite well tableside young in a restaurant environment. So uh, that's what you should be looking at. I'm going to have to go through because that there's two things that scare me about wines that Parties? I have. That well, a lot of things scare me, but when in relation to wine and cellaring, holding on to wine, one is I hold on to a wine and something's happening. I'm I'm 
I'm on a boat, I'm on a cruise, and the ship's going down. And I'm like, God damn it. Why didn't I open that card now? So it's going to be that's I'm losing it. So one is that I held on to it and and something happens and I never get to drink them. I know that's crazy thing to think about. But then the other thing is that I forget about wines, which has happened to me before, mostly with white wines, because you're not really aging those. But sometimes I'll put them in and they're really good white wines. And then I open the thing up and I'm like, ah, shit thing's seven years old you know it's no good anymore you know so is that i let it sit too long particularly a a prestige wine a you know so i guess the the note would be that you just got to stay on top of it right and sort of make little make little notes about all right i should be thinking about this opening this thing like i'm i'm not joking you i'm gonna put a note in my calendar which is very optimistic because you know the lifestyle i lead to think that i'll still be around in 10 years chris to drink these wines is very optimistic but i am going to put a note in my calendar that says okay take a look at those wines in 2029 i guess it would be right you know yeah well so you know what a lot of our collectors do not all of us can afford that uh, but a lot of our collectors will buy, let's say, a six-pack of each one of the sure. wines. And they'll open it. You know, that six-pack will arrive at their door. They'll open up a bottle that night. They'll get a sense of it. You know, and then they've got five bottles. Maybe the next bottle will open two or three years down the line. And they can see how it's aging. What You know, what all wineries do is offer that recommendation to you. So if there are wines that you're like, I don't know where this wine is. I can't find any information about it on the web, which now you can. Do they still call it the web, by the way? Um, the the, the, the intruders. You can call, always call the winery and say, hey, man, I've got a 11 Cardinal. When do you think that's going to be ready? I'm doing retrospective tastings all the time for exactly that reason. So that I can give that information to our tasting room people and say, okay, here's where these wines are. Here's what I would recommend to our, our customers on this as far as aging. Um, and you know, you can always, uh, if you, if you go to one of the high end restaurants that have a lot of those wines on by the glass, at like 50 to a hundred dollars a glass, you can always buy a glass somewhere else that you have a bottle of at home and taste it in that format as well. There's, there's ways of getting around that and, and making sure that you're on top of it. Or just have friends that can help you out. Like I, uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the thing, Dan, you and I have a relationship, so you can always call me and ask me that. In fact, with a lot of my customers, I have relationships with my collectors and I get calls all the time by these guys. Hey man, we're going to open this tonight. Is it ready to go? I'm like, yeah, go, it's ready to go. Or, or think of another one. Uh, that's, that's part of the fun. You know, you were, you mentioned earlier, one of the greatest things for me uh, in this business, you know, besides, I, I, I'm in a really cool gig, man. I, I, I'm out in the vineyards all day long in my shorts and T-shirt. I'm in the winery, which is like a giant erector set for kids making making uh, wine. But the but one of the greatest moments is when one of the collectors tastes my wine, and you can see their reaction, or they or they send you a note telling you how how good the wine is, and or it's some memorable event in their life that they decided to put one of my wines as part of that evening's festivities. And there's nothing, there's nothing better than that, you know? Yeah. uh, But I do it. Reminds me of this urine test I took a long time ago. And I was like, man, whoever (laughs) supplied this urine tester really knew what they were doing. Uh, On that note, (laughs) 
on the urine note. Yeah, I don't. I you know I don't want to look at your urine test. No, there's things in there that defy science. Years. What is this? Where has this guy been? Um, Chris Carpenter makes wine for so many places. I mean, I can't run them all down again, but uh, look them up. He mentioned the Google, the intr- the intranet, whatever we're calling it these days. Get on there. Uh, if you can get some of his wines, I, I can't recommend it uh, more highly. There there are few winemakers that I know in the world that make wine uh, as, as beautifully as you do, my friend. And uh, it's always good to catch up with you and uh, look forward to doing this more often and maybe coming up to see you up there. Yeah, Dan. Um, in fact, yeah, let's let's stay in touch because I do want to catch up with you uh, personally at some point. We'll drink a bottle of wine and either I'll come down there you, when, next time you're up this way. I think I think that's a good idea. Well, I'm gonna. I, I hear the. I hear one of the carpenters is going to be a bartending at the Rutherford Grill. I'm going to have to go in. Yeah, you might. Have next to. generation. See, yeah. <laughs> she picked up Dad's chops behind the bar. You know, that's scary. <laughs> uh, Chris Carpenter, everybody. And finally, I should leave you with a funny. An American, a Frenchman, and a Russian are stranded on a desert island. They build a shelter and they catch fish for food. One day, they catch a magical golden fish who cries, If you spare my life, I'll give you each two wishes. Amazing, says the American. I wish for a million dollars and to be back home. Poof, he's gone. Sacre bleu, shouts the Frenchman. I wish for a million euro and to be back home. Poof, he vanishes. The Russian is amazed. Would you look at that, he says. And just when we were getting along so well. Tell you what, just give me three cases of vodka and bring my friends back. <laughs>